And we're on the air. This is Isabeau. And this is Morgan. And we're here to introduce you to a new thing that we're going to have on the program. You know, how when you're with someone for a really long time, and it's just the two of you, and it's like you really like that person. You love them, in fact. But you just kind of want to make other people feel uncomfortable. (laughs) (laughs) And you want to do it in intimate and close quarters over a bottle of wine. And you just... (laughs) (laughs) You also want to introduce others, particularly people that you like to the genre of romance where everybody can feel good, empowered, and get into the stuff, you know, that they're into. Absolutely. And sometimes you want to take people who know way more than you do and also bring them into the fold. Exactly. On this week's episode of Romance, we are so excited to introduce you to someone who is near and dear to our hearts and is about to be near and dear to yours. That was so good. Thank you. So buckle up, Buttercup. We got something new and something delicious just for you. Hi, I'm Isabel, and this is Romance, a podcast about romance novels, people from Houston, Texas, holocausts of Of emotions, emotions. (laughs) sexual holocausts. Um, This week, as you may have noticed, we have uh, two guest stars. We have... My name is Nigel O'Hearn. I'm Maruf (laughs) Nabulsi. And they're here to talk about a romance novel that they read as very young men uh, hanging out together. While we um, lived together. While you lived together. In the hot, steamy nights of... Austin. We were in Austin living together. <laughs> During college. <laughs> and after. Yeah. Anyway, uh, the book that we've picked for this particular is one of their favorites, Judith McNaught's Paradise, which came out in 1991 when Bill Clinton was running for public office. Until that last dog died. (laughs) (laughs) Do you guys want to talk about what drew you to this particular project and this particular novel? Yeah. I had heard, um, full disclosure, um, I was like reading this book on how to pick up women. Oh my god, really? Uh, yeah. Like this a, was back when I was... <laughs> like a pickup artist know. book? Like a some, Pua? Some, is that what it was? I don't Because they're like not great people on Reddit. They're terrible. Sure, yeah. They're this terrible. is not a brand of person yeah. it wants to be. So um, this is quite a disclosure. Well, Thank you Nigel your- doesn't know this. <laughs> up until now. God, dude, yeah. this entire experience is like... You're starting off with uncovering a lie that is like throwing <laughs> into relief. I did like want, I a just major left, chapter I just, of our life and friendship. <laughs> Jesus. Well, okay. In fairness, I knew he was probably doing this to try to like, what should a man do to quote unquote attract? So he, you know, it's man, this, the concept's really simple. He, he just is like, you know, just read a romance novel and like read a romance f- and f- do that. F- no, no. It's just like, <laughs> like he's like, lots of women like these. Yeah. Why do you think that is? Mm-hmm. Is pretty much the pose, the question he poses. It's mm-hmm. like you just, like and that pick one and read it. Maybe you'll have a better idea of it. Is, is pretty much what he says. And you took that question and ran. I said, oh, okay. I said so many. I just I see them all the time. My grandma read them all mm-hmm. the time, and I was like, okay. And I literally just looked up bestsellers on Amazon. Awesome. So that's yeah. where I enter the story. I, whilst cohabitating, I walked into the next room, both of us in our underwear as usual. And he was like, I read this thing that said men should read a romance novel. So I'm going to find the absolute best one, which side note is one of Maru's favorite like <laughs> life 
projects. He's sort of like, I need to buy a new pair of shoes. I'm going to spend five days Googling best <laughs> shoes. <laughs> I love your dedication to research here, Maru. So he did. He'd, and the research results returned this novel, Paradise, by Judith McNaught, which he was like, I'm going to read this. And I was like, yeah, I'll do that. And so we set out on a sojourn reading this book aloud together for about the period of six months plus. I was so glad you had offered to do it with me because I don't think I would have. <laughs> you don't think you would have gone through it? I don't think I would have ever finished it. You'd always be like, hey, you ready to read? To be fair, this book is almost as long as Moby Dick or Les Mis. It's super long. It was very, it's, it's yeah. very intimidating. The copy we had. Got it, yeah. Yeah, the paperback copy we had was like 700 pages. It was. Yeah, this isn't light tremendous. reading. Tremendous. Well, we read it over the course of a year ish, you know what I mean? So we probably read it between the ages of like 20, 21. It's probably how old we were. Yeah. We would read it in bed together at night. That's a fact. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe the cutest thing I've ever heard in my whole life. What was it like revisiting this novel uh, 10 years later? So much fun. Um, Yeah. I forgot how much fun we had reading it. (laughs) (laughs) Or I forgot how much fun we had having Nigel read it to me. That was most, mostly the method of reading. I don't usually read it. I just like sit there and listen and just kind of like, we just, and we stop and discuss whenever we yeah. want. It's like, it's very like open and free. And we, we ask each other questions about yeah, like if we're confused or how we feel about what the characters are doing. Yeah, it was, yeah. A, it was like an interesting thing because it, it started off, I think kind of as a joke. And then obviously we got invested in it and we clearly enjoyed it enough to finish the whole thing which is like quite a commitment but it was I guess yeah to Maru's point it was kind of like a diacritical exercise we would like read and then we would stop and we'd be like Meredith who's the main character Meredith Mm -hmm. just said this thing why do you think Meredith would say that and then we would like talk to each other for about five minutes about like have you ever felt this way about like yeah Meredith is She's a lot. Meredith's a lot. They're all a lot. They're all they're all very overwrought. So like let's yeah. give our listeners a brief <laughs> synopsis of this behemoth. And then we'll we'll really get into the we'll get into the meat of it. So I'm gonna attempt to wrangle this novel in a brief synopsis. Please chime in with details as you want to lay them down. Uh, so our heroine, Meredith Bancroft, has been in love with a young man named Parker Reynolds since the time that she can remember. She's a Chicago socialite. Her father is emotionally abusive and manipulative and terrible, has Phillip banished... PB, that dude is <laughs> Philip the, Bancroft. The fucking pits. Has banished her mother through divorce to Italy because apparently she's some sort of slut, which you find out later that she's not. And Meredith just sort of goes along with all of us. Um, she's also sent to a private Catholic school on the South Side, which we're not very familiar with Chicago, especially in the late 70s, early 80s. You would think that Philip would have not have sent his daughter to a South Side Catholic school, certainly not at 46th Street. Anyway, she meets up with this awesome Italian girl named Lisa, and they become friends, and she lies to Lisa and says that the chauffeur that picks her up every day is her dad, not her actual chauffeur. And it takes Lisa about a week to figure this out because Lisa impromptu who shows up at the mansion and is like, why did you lie to me? Blah, 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 blah. How did she get there? How did she, she takes get to... public transit there. Cause All the Le- way to the mansion? Yeah, because Lisa fucking knows how to get around Chicago. Nobody's pulling tricks with Lisa. She's got uncles, she's got brothers, she's she got sisters. Like red line, yeah. red line, the freaking purple line, yeah, the freaking like dart bus. She fucking Jesus. did it. <laughs> <laughs> Lisa's the best. 
Um, and then instead scrappy. of scrappy, super scrappy, scrappy Italian ethnically Pontini. Pontini. Yeah. Um, and so then they become fast friends because Lisa forgives Meredith, and then Meredith hatches a scheme to get Lisa to go to private girls sleepaway school in Vermont, and she does all of this without telling Lisa. And she's like, "I'm going to give you a world class education that's going to open college doors for you because I know you want to go to college, and there's no money for college, and your dad doesn't want you to go to college because." girls don't go to college. Does Lisa have like nine siblings or something? She does. And her parents are Italian immigrants and her father is on the union picket line when we oh, meet wow. her because he's a pipe fitter with chapter whatever, whatever. And like is working the picket. Like Lisa's deep into an amazing Bon Jovi song. Oh, she's like the Lisa of Bon Jovi lore. Yes. Okay. I see. We're halfway there, Lisa. Yeah. In fact, you're actually only about 20 pages into the novel at this point because, like, the first 60 pages Lisa's are really just living like, by a prayer. They're like they're just like journal chapters in Meredith's diary, I guess, that update. She's like, "I'm 13 and I look frumpy," and then she's like, "I'm at sleepaway school, Lisa, and I had a fight." And then, well, they don't get to. So there's this scene where she arranges the whole thing with her dad. She's like, "Wouldn't it be great if I were charitable?" You're constantly telling me a woman's place is to like do charity. Lisa's like this really well deserving person who would never get this opportunity anyway. It'll be a tax write-off for us. We need to talk about capital in this book later. And then he's like, sure, make it happen. And like, you know, we'll give an endowment to the school and it will be specifically for all of Lisa's room and board intuition. So then she has her chauffeur take her to Lisa's one-story brick bungalow on the south side. All of her siblings come pouring out on the porch to say hello and whatever. And then she goes to Lisa and she's like, isn't this great what I've done for you? And Lisa's like, fuck you. I'm not a charity case. I can't leave my mom who's pregnant again. (laughs) And then the next day she shows back up at the mansion and she's like, my mom and dad had this huge fight about it. She called all my aunts and uncles. Education was her dream and now it's my dream. And like everybody put all this money onto the table so that I can afford the ticket to go to Vermont. Thank you so much. You're the nicest person ever. That worked out. That's the first 80 pages. And then we have stuff about Vermont and then they're 18. Lisa leaves. And this is fine. Finally, when we get to meet our hero, where we meet him in the back of a mechanic shop in 1878, (laughs) balls deep in the princess of South Gary, Indiana. So then he hears about this scheme to go to South America to make $150,000 in Venezuela as... Working on an oil rig, right? As a roughneck. He meets the guy who's being punished... Um, and by punished, I mean he's spending his trust fund ill-advisedly and his father is sending him to Venezuela to run the thing. And so he's hired all these people, including Matt, and then to get back at his dad, who has cut off his purse strings, he invites Matt to the country club where Meredith and all of her other country club friends are. And that's For the 4th where, of July. For the 4th of July. Yeah, we read that scene. And that is where Matt <laughs> and <laughs> Meredith meet. She's 18, he's 26, and fireworks go off metaphorically and literally. Oh, do they. So we should roll out, I suppose, when they meet, uh, everybody at the country club is like, oh, Matt, you clearly don't have a tuxedo that fits Fits you. you. 
you're from Indiana. Yucky. We're, <laughs> we're not going to talk to you. Is this tuxedo like too small for it's, him? Yeah, because his like, shoulders yeah. are too broad. They yeah, intuit, that's right. He's they, just popping right out of it. Yeah, yeah he's like basically yeah. going to Conan this stuff. He's, yeah, he's he's Hemsworth Rawr. brothering his yeah. way through this tuxedo suit. So people um, are treating him badly. Also, he's not making it easier for himself because people are like, oh, Indiana, are you of the, um, like, whatever, whatever? And he's like, no, I work in a steel mill on the floor and I'm a mechanic on well, Saturday. Would you have him lie? No, but he's like mean about it yeah he is he like snaps at them he's like he's yeah. like what what he doesn't get better than me yeah he doesn't try to sugarcoat it he's definitely like yeah. seems to be antagonizing yeah. them yeah yeah so meredith is like oh these people are horrendous i will befriend you and then they have an okay evening yeah they have a lot of fun they have this really nice exchange on the dance but he also floor. Uh, mistakes her age he yeah. thinks that she's graduated from college and she just... lets that omission stand she that understands his misconception about her because he's like oh what are you doing She's like, I just got back from school. Right. And then he's like, So he's like, like oh. I don't know anything about boarding schools because I'm from Gary, Indiana. Exactly. So I so assume you went to college. Yeah. So he's like, you're 22. I'm 26. We could make this happen. You're yeah. Cool. Whatever. And then he was like, in the next line, he was like looking at her mouth. And that was like. That's typical. <laughs> <laughs> That's how romance novels go. He's 20. So he's 26. He's 26. Yeah. And she is. is actually 18. She's 18. Yep. Mm. And she's like never. Well, she's kissed people, she says in the book, but like they're always over eager boys. She has some descriptor. Like. She kissed Parker nice which is her girlhood crush and Parker tells her this evening and he's 24 that he is engaged and her grandfather's died she's had a really rough summer Lisa's gone she her has dad won't no let her allies. go to Northwestern her dad won't let her go to Northwestern because girls don't need yeah. to go to business school and so she's feeling really rebellious on this 4th of July night they kiss underneath an oak tree and then her dad is surveilling constantly her dad <laughs> always. is just always like in whatever room he is he's just staring and at frowning yeah. with his mean face PB that wet son of a bitch He's terrible. Truly. Yeah, he's like really, a really, yeah, he's really a really terrible. good villain. So he sees them kissing, and then everybody comes outside, and then he like basically has two waiters try to throw Matt out, and Matt's like, "Don't worry, I know where the door is." And then she's like in tears, yeah, yeah. and then her dad is like, "Go home." Twenty five minutes to get home. I'm going to call you, and God help you if you're not there. You know what's nuts? We reflected on this. We were reading this, and I, I feel like PB makes Philip Bancroft <laughs> makes two major blunders if he's trying to keep his daughter under lock and key in this. Like, if you're mm-hmm. Philip Bancroft, he does two things, right? One is they're all talking to Matt, and Matt's like, no, I'm from Indiana, I'm a deal worker. <laughs> and he's like, he says to Meredith, he's like, get rid of him, right? And it's like, so one, he puts them in a situation by themselves where he's like, come on, everybody else, to dinner. And sort of like makes Meredith like quote unquote, get rid of him. Of course, this leads to them kissing. Yep. And then what does he do very next? He's like, Matt, get out of here, you low life. I'm going to have these two, you know. Apes in white tuxedos. Yeah. You know, they're the help. Throw you out. He's like, Meredith, I'm going to stay here till three in the morning playing cards. You go home by yourself. And of course, what does she do? She gets in her car, drives by Matt and is like, hey, do you want to get in my car? And And she's like crying. And he's like, how about I drive your car? And like, that's one of the things that I really love about Matt. He doesn't comment (laughs) about the fact that she's crying. First time I've heard you say you like something about Matt. I do. I like I like like three or four things about Matt, and this is one okay. of them. Like he doesn't comment that she's crying, and he's like, "It would be a real thrill for me to drive a car like this. I don't know when I'm going to get an opportunity to because she's crying so much that it's hard for her to drive on this country road at night." He gives her an out for her feelings, but also to drive and the terrible, take over terrible country roads in Willamette. <laughs> right, but like to like take over the driving because like usually when guys are like, "I'm going to drive," I'm like, "Oh fuck you and your masculinity," but like Matt makes. It's nice. So we, okay, so like, do you mm-hmm. like Matt Maroof? 
If we're reading this, all right, as 21-year-olds, we're like, reading would this. I, like, would, would I want to be like Matt? Yeah, like, were you reading Matt from the point of view, like, okay, so your job is like, okay, I'm going to read this book. I'm going to figure out, you know, what's going on in these books that is, like, connected. I didn't read it from that. I didn't read it from that angle. I just, like, I just read it. Okay. But I see what you're saying, and uh, I, maybe bits and pieces. What, what about him? His, like... Just like supreme confidence, I guess. He is very confident. Yeah, he's super, super confident. Yeah. And like when he walks into this room with like all these like rich people who like come after him, he's just like so brazen and mm-hmm. just like. Without being like drunk or rude. You know? Yeah. He's I mean, like, not even rude. It's just like, you're making me the outsider. I'll be the yeah. outsider. Yeah. Okay with it. So it's kind of a little, little rock and roll, a little touch of rock and roll to totally. it. You know what I mean? Yeah. 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 I do like lots of stuff about him, but I also, there's definitely some stuff where I'm just like yeah, I don't know about that. I appreciate it about the portrait of him that Judith McNaught very delicately draws. <laughs> is that like she kind of always is juxtaposing that with like what Meredith sees is his vulnerability. I or at least in this scene. Mm-hmm. She's like, oh, Meredith remembers not relating to people yeah. at boarding school in Vermont. And so they're like one another. Like this there's this whole passage how he's like pretending to be okay with being an outsider. So I don't know. I I, I think at least Judith McNaught is trying to like she's trying to do something. Yeah. Does totally. she succeed in doing that thing? Uh with Matt in that moment for sure. Like I mean when they go back, like I think he is really sweet and like aware of her feelings and, like, how shitty her dad is. And, like, she's in this world where her dad is both a paragon and, like, a terrifying Tyrannosaurus Rex, so, like, she never sees anyone challenge him. And the one time someone did in her life, Lisa, Lisa's entire future was threatened. (laughs) And so then Lisa was also a 16-year-old girl and backed down. But, like, Matt doesn't back down from the intimidation in that moment. And I think that was good for Meredith to see. Um, Then they go back and have sex on her dad's couch, so... The moment they have sex is really weird in this way. So it's like Judith. <laughs> <laughs> so bad. Well, the, so it's like, so it's like, Judith, like I wanted it to be good too. I was like, oh man, it's going to be great. It's yeah. Not, no, no. Yeah. I mean, well, it's really strange how it starts because it, 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 it starts from this point of view. It seem seemingly. So it's like, this was the major sex scene that we revisited mm-hmm. to read aloud and sort of like talk about mm-hmm. together in terms of like how is sex portrayed in this book. Yeah, it gets and, better than this later, but... Well, it's also a weird... Well, she's, like, losing her virginity in this scene. Which, which she is, doesn't tell him. Which she, she does doesn't not tell disclose. Him. And then, of course, like, his response to her not telling him is like, like, why didn't you tell me? You know, because he's... Well, he feels bad. Yeah, absolutely. But what's weird is, like, she's clearly doing this as an act of rebellion or revenge against her father. And he acknowledges that. And then, yeah, and then Judith McNaught has him be like, Meredith... You don't have to tear off your clothes that quickly. I've right? never seen a woman do that in to the actually, actually tear off her clothes. In the... So you think as the reader, like, oh, here's this really sensitive guy who's who's observing, like, oh, this person is perhaps not in the state of mind that they need to be engaging sexually. And then, but his response to that is not like, we don't have to do this. His response is like, I'll take off your clothes. <laughs> and then he slowly takes off her clothes, right? So it was kind of a, I don't know, it was a weird juxtaposition of like, he's very sensitive, but, you know, at the end of the day, he's still... You know. Not sensitive. At the end of the day, he's still in a sex fugue, which is how <laughs> Judith McNaught describes sex. I think what's weird about him is that he feels like a teenager in this moment. And like when it's disclosed that he's a 26 year old who also has been going to night school for four years to get his MBA, because he felt like 18 in this moment. He feels really immature. He also finds out though that she's a virgin. So all of this stuff. But he finds out right after right he away. takes it. Right. Yes, absolutely. That doesn't stop him from finishing his 
inside of me. No, me, not at all. Also, oh, like, rookie terrible. mistake for a 26-year-old. Like, not what rookie mistake. Not a Problems of consent mistake. Yeah. Let me tell you. Totally. Ain't nobody ever made that mistake, okay? Right. That might have been explained as a mistake a number of times. Like, oh, no, what happened? I lost consciousness. I was in a sex feud. You smelled away, you know? Right. And then, like, none of them, even even up until that moment, like, no one's talking about condoms. And, like, neither of them talk about the consequences of this potential action. Well, you know, there's, yeah. like, none of that. At this day and age, HIV, right? Yeah, that's 1991, 1991, 1991 is when it's written, and, and they have this affair sometime in the 70s. I think it's 79 or he's something. Pro- he's probably thinking, this is really terrible, but he's probably thinking, it's Philip Bancroft's daughter. I'm, she's just not oh. happy HIV. Oh my God. Oh, he's probably thinking, yeah. He's which I they are on his the couch he's in these his office. From, yes. Yeah, from yes. all that. Right. Because the act of sexuality comes right after a hang up from Philip. Totally. Boy, PB looms large. Super large in this. Like, he's a major dick in all the ways. Literally just imagining, like, a penis <laughs> in a tuxedo. That goes to work every yeah. day. With a with monocle. A, yeah, like, totally. Yeah. A super flaccid penis <laughs> with a super big, like, foreskin scowl. <laughs> <laughs> what Philip Bancroft looks like. He's like, Get out of here. Take care of him. Yeah. So then he gives her his number. Sure. And then he leaves because she's like, my dad's going to be back from his standard card game. You have to go. He orders right. himself a cab. Right. And that's that. And right. he doesn't call her, which I think this is the first moment where I'm like, Meredith, I don't like you. Why? Because she never gave him her number. How was he going to call her? He was in her house. Yeah, but like, he's going to look up the yellow pages. He gave her his number. That's putting the ball in her court. Um, and you think she should have put it in his? Because like, we spend the next five pages being like, he's not calling me. Maybe he's not calling me because he's busy. He's not calling me because he didn't like me. He's not calling me because he didn't like oh, the sex. She, I don't that. like him anymore anyway. So that she was like, oh. so she was like, I didn't give him any way to contact me. Right. And I'm also like psychologizing the reasons he might he's not, not be calling, calling me. me. Yeah. I'm like, that is a pretty Meredith move. Totally. And I'm like, you have yellow pages. So like, uh, ostensibly he could have called, but like, you have his number. You also in know your he only has six weeks in the country. Yeah. Because he's going to Venezuela to make his fortune on the rigs. Right. $150,000 in 1970s money. That's like so much. Anyway, so then she misses her period and then she's like, oh, it's nerves. It's like I'm fighting with my dad about going to Northwestern and then she misses it again. They did not get any comprehensive sex education at the Vermont boarding school she went to. Right, right. Um, So then she... Or more sinister suggestion. The idea was they'd get pregnant. Yeah, totally. That's exactly what the idea was. But they wanted to be impregnated by Yaley's, who they're always hanging out with at that school. Yaley's. Yaley. Um, so then she finds out she's <laughs> pregnant, goes to the Planned Parenthood on the south side where no one will recognize her. She has the cash in hand because she doesn't want it to show up in insurance. I remember this since she says she went to a new doctor because her regular OB is, quote, one of her dad's cronies? Yes, cronies. Why would you go to an OB that's your dad's crony in the first place? Because Philip Bancroft owns everyone in Chicago. Yeah, man. That... He's basically the machine, but for the Republicans. Because so, he's so a PB staunch Republican. is... 
patriarchy boldface. Yes. Oh, yeah. Through and through. Yeah. Boldface and yeah. period. Is that is that a double entendre? No, like, it's just like its own, like it's patriarchy, boldface, own sentence, next period, paragraph. Period, period. Okay, okay. <laughs> own paragraph. Next page. <laughs> Epigraph. <laughs> Got you. All right. Um, so then she ends up contacting him because she's like, oh my God, I'm pregnant. And she shows up at the mechanic shop and I put a smiley face next to this because he's like, are you absolutely certain you're pregnant? I went to this clinic this morning. They said I'm six weeks pregnant. I'm certain the baby's yours in case you're wondering and you're too polite to ask. And he says, I'm not that polite. And I'm like, that's nice. Then he says, what do you want to do? And she says, kill myself. And he oh my goes, God. what's your second choice? And I'm like, oh, Matt, that's a good answer. You don't dismiss her suicidal out of hand, but like, good job. Yeah, totally. Yeah, strong moment for Matt. Strong moment, yeah. He's really funny is the thing that I think I like about him most. And he rolls with it. Like, he makes everything, like, enjoyable. And then they're like, let's keep the baby and get married. Which seems like Who suggests that? Who suggests that? Well, she's like, I can't give it up for adoption. I think that would be too hard. I'd wander the world thinking this baby was looking for me. And I can't have an abortion because blah, 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 blah. There wouldn't be a novel if I had one. And then she's like, (laughs) I guess I'll keep it. This novel is literally predicated. Yeah, it's just like Knocked Up or Juno. So that's fine. I'm with it there. (laughs) Shots fucking fire. (laughs) (laughs) Kids Knocked Up at Juno. Hashtag same movie. Yeah, you can't have a get-together over a pregnancy if you end the pregnancy. Yes. But, twist, though. Because, yeah. like, guess what happens? She loses the baby. Yeah. It's pregnant. Yeah. Which is, like, a really heartrending, like, kind of montage of passages. Totally. It's amazing. That's actually one of the things that I think I like most about this book, because it feels really... Brave is maybe too strong a word, but, like, romance novels never talk about miscarriage, and they never talk about it this graphically, or, yeah. like, what it does to emotions. And something that we're not good at about talking in our own society in general. And so, like, the fact that it takes so long to talk about it, and we keep talking about it, and then they have this moment of catharsis later i thought was really really good do you remember reading that together when we were yeah what was that like that she that she got that she that she miscarried and it's really sadly drawn as 21 year olds so like be reading this book in bed and (laughs) and be like whoa this is nuts. This might have been my first experience, like discussing at length, obviously, because I had to read the mm-hmm. pages. A miscarriage. She goes to the doctor. Right, right. She goes on bed rest. She right. tries to write these letters, like, right. Matt, I'm so worried. Right. And so, like, the way. And he which, doesn't answer her. Well. Is he in Venezuela? He's in Venezuela because he wants her to come eventually, but the cabins aren't nice enough for her to have the baby there. Right. Wow. So, like, there's this whole thing where he's like, you can't come. She's like, you don't want me to come. And he's like, I didn't say that. And then, Dad's intercepting the letters. You right, find out, right, which is heart wrenching. But like this Does whole she clinical trust her letters like with her dad. Is she no? That's okay. this. That's the super fucked up part, right? Okay. Not only is the dad mail just gives them right to him or something. That, Fuck but it. also when he she be. gives it to her maid, who like is surrogate mom, and the butler Albertson, they put them in a locked safe in the office. And like, there's a fade to black moment where I'm like, literally everyone in her life is betraying her but Matt. And Lisa's still in Rome. Learning interior design. As one does in Rome at 18. Yeah. Lisa's living large. Yeah, but like, (laughs) she's also not calling Lisa about any of this. She like, apparently How could she? Yeah, it's so expensive in 1978 or whatever. We're thinking very fondly of Lisa. Lisa's Lisa's the best, yeah. Yeah, She's like, there's nothing bad about Lisa. Lisa is a wonderful friend. Yeah, she's so strong. But like, the the way in which like, Judith McNaught talks about all of the lead up into miscarriage and like, her misgivings about her own body's like, what's happening to it and like, Mm -hmm. her fear, it's like, really comprehensive. And 
you just don't get that in books, uh, certainly yeah. about miscarriage. So it was, yeah, I remember, I remember reading those passages pretty vividly. I mean, and she almost hemorrhages and dies. Right. Like, yeah. Grave. And then they, she puts up a grave, right? Well, you find out that she's too sick to go, so she entrusted to her dad. But Fuck. like, we don't know if Philip did it or not. Ever at the end of the book, even. Well, there's this thing. Okay, it's like this is skipping ahead, but like after we find out the dad's been stealing the letters, Philip told Matt in a telegram right. to him in Venezuela right. that she didn't miscarry, that she aborted right. the baby at right. six months and right. then wanted a divorce. And then right. Matt is so torn up about this idea that she's had this late-term right. abortion that he's like, get the divorce. That's a great idea. And that's the telegram. And she doesn't believe the telegram. She's like, dad, this is a mistake. You've sent this. You're against us. And then she traces it to Matt's credit card. And Matt took the charges because that is the telegram he sent. And that's the one that dad lets through. So then they labor on the, under this misconception that he never visited her in the hospital, that he thinks she had this abortion. They go through 11 years of trauma. They meet up later when she's right. discovered the truth of her dad's lies. And then she's telling him, I wanted there to be a spray of like pink roses or whatever. And then she's like, do you think dad did it? And he's like, I'm sure he did. And I'm like, oh, Matt, I'm sure he didn't. But that's really nice. PB probably like checked the gender of the show. Like, a little girl. But was it going to be a boy? No. Nope. And then did it. She also named the little girl Elizabeth after Matt's dead mom. Well, that's nice-ish. She died of cancer in a racking thing that then led Matt's dad to become an alcoholic for 11 years. Right, right. Part of his dark trauma. Right. Patrick. Yep. Oh, Pat. Oh, Patty boy. Oh, Patty boy. That Where brings they, us to the present day. That brings of the, us to the of, present, of, of present Paradise, day. the novel. Yeah. That's a lot. That's a lot of like... Heartbreak. Th that's the first hundred pages or yep. so. Uh, and then the next time we meet Matt... He's, he's become a corporate raider. That's on the back of the book. Corporate raider? <laughs> yeah. When corporate raider Matt <laughs> Farrell targets a department store empire... He crosses paths with stunning blonde. <laughs> I love that they had to throw that in there. Yeah. Don't, don't worry, readers. She's blonde. <laughs> Meredith Bancroft. Super and a, blonde name. And a once-in-a-lifetime passion and bittersweet memories. How can it be both a once-in-a-lifetime passion with bittersweet memories? This because is clearly it's a once-in-a-lifetime It's a twice-in-a-lifetime passion. No, it's the same person. Yeah, that's twice-in-a-lifetime. But it's that there's second chance is the thing. That's the trope in romance that this is. It's well, they the should have Second chance. Second Second chance romance. Man, there's something satisfying about a second chance, isn't there? That's like what we're doing with this book. And like, it's not yeah. like second chance. It's like we've always loved each other, but like, yeah. but returning to it. Oh yeah, we haven't spent this much time together in a long time. Well, yeah, yeah. So what happens when you live in New York? Yeah. <laughs> and you live in Chicago and neither of you live in the steamy heat of Texas. Okay, so that brings us to the present. Matt is a corporate raider. He is going to Chicago to corporate raid. Meredith <laughs> is 29 and uh, is vice executive at her father's store. And he is a literal monster to her and all of his executives. When I was flipping through it, there's a line in there where there are only two female vice presidents. Yep. And it says... Uh, but they don't even look at each other. Said because to look at each other would give Philip the satisfaction of knowing that women in the room needed one another. Yeah, it's so <laughs> fucked up. Yeah, it's pretty terrible. And everyone's constantly like being like, "You should wear dresses, not pantsuits, and you should do this, and blah blah blah." It's like disgusting. At least she's like resistant. Barely. You're right. Yeah. Lisa says this <laughs> thing to her where she's like, "You need to take more chances. You should vote for a Democrat." Yeah. And I'm like. What year is this? Does it make her less likable that she's not resistant? 
I think so. That's one of the reasons yeah, why yeah. I don't like Meredith. Yeah. Like, she, she... see that. I, yeah. I can also, but like, don't you feel like she's just buckling under the pressure? I don't know. Like she's been domineered for a long time? Yeah, she's been browbeaten into this like little... Yeah, and like hole. I feel like she's like, you know, product of her... Yeah, yeah so what you're saying is like... We, she is, definitely. Is, yeah. So... But you still feel like it's okay to not like her. Oh, yeah. Oh, it's definitely okay to not like her, but maybe it's like how much blame you lay on her. Okay. I mean, I can see that. Her dad has yeah. been manipulating her since birth, and she's literally had no allies. Yeah, totally. The fact that she's still so resistant is like tenderly triumphant to me. So do you think that Judith McNaught is making some kind of commentary, or do you think Judith McNaught is like a Reagan Republican? Yeah, she's just like oblivious and like... She's from Houston, sh- Texas. Yeah, she wants to show like... She loves like, Houston. She talks about it all the time in this book. There's nothing love about Houston. <laughs> I'm from there, so I can say that. You definitely can <laughs> so, say so that. I, so there won't be a fight that breaks out. <laughs> Born and raised. Oh, yeah, my dad grew up in Houston. Houston, Texas. Screw Stan. I spent a very sweaty weekend in Houston yes. in December. Yeah. yeah. Mm. Did not leave me with fond memories. It's like a, mm. it's like a concrete tongue licking you. <laughs> <laughs> with traffic. <laughs> with traffic and danger. Uh, but I did eat at Whataburger. <laughs> sure. Oh, great. Yeah. Did you get the chicken dinner basket? I didn't. I got, you got a, a burger, didn't you? Got a burger. burger. Yeah, that's good. Rookie mistake. <laughs> chicken tender basket. <laughs> chicken tender basket is very good. It comes with Texas toast, full. Whoa. And, and gravy. Yeah. Wait, isn't Texas toast just garlic bread? No. No, it's no. just like, oh. it's thick gut, buttered white toast. Yeah. Thick cut. Thick cut. So it's like French toast, but like not sweet. You don't want garlic on it because you're dipping it in the gravy. (laughs) (laughs) Guys. Garlic is not, if unless I'm misspeaking. You are dipping the Texas toast in the gravy. That's true. You're dipping everything in gravy, ideally. Yeah. If you could get like, if you could pour a little gravy into your Dr. Pepper, that would be (laughs) the best. (laughs) (laughs) Things I don't want to imagine. There was a short period of Dr. Pepper for me, but nah. Done with that? Done. Do you have a, do you have a sort of choice now or? Seltzer. Mm. Seltzer? It's just seltzer water. Your yeah. soda of choice is, is, is seltzer. You fancy. I'm so fancy. Yeah, that's all right. <laughs> oh, okay. This is one of the things that like I then was maybe maneuvering into Maroof territory where <laughs> oh. there's a there's a boardroom scene. Mm. Um, he was a petty, malicious man who'd always repelled Meredith despite his good looks. This is the guy who's stealing from Bancroft. Stuart? No, Mitchell. Gordon Mitchell. Mitchell. Stuart's the lawyer that I really like. Oh, okay. He's okay, like, right. Her yeah. childhood friend. Yeah. Okay. Who was in love with her and then not shitty about it. Right. Um, I'm sure we're all aware and appreciative of Teresa's fashion clairvoyance. Philip said with stinging derision. He did not like women among his vice presidents and everyone knew it. Teresa rolled her eyes. She did, this is the thing that you were talking about. She did not look to Meredith for empathy. To do so would have showed a kind of mutual dependency, ergo weakness, and they both knew better than to show any sign of that to their formidable president. I'm like, why are we calling him formidable and not asshole? Making excuses for people. Patriarchy. Yeah, yeah that's man, true. For sure. Yeah. Wait, so Stuart is in love with her. What did, mm-hmm. how did she, what did she say to Stuart? They have this really wonderful moment where he's like, I'm in love with you. And she's like, well, I can't be in love with you because I'm not. And then he's like, well, I'll wait. And she's like, don't do that. Why don't we just be friends? And you can be my lawyer. And then because of lawyer-client privilege, we can't yeah. be in love with each other. And then he's like, okay, I'll think about that. And then she yeah. makes a false claim that she like stole aspirin from a CVS and is at a local precinct and calls him to bail her out. And then she's waiting on the steps of the precinct and he shows up in a cab and then she's like so I guess you're my lawyer now forever and he's like haha funny joke I guess I am <laughs> what is that face I just I don't know just poor fucking Stuart yeah like, Stuart has a hard time what about a, it. yeah 
Ugh. And now he's like... And now he's like... He serves her. Yeah. She pays him he's a really like, decent retainer. That's, that's all true. I'm saying. You know, like, you know what's interesting is, like, there are a couple men in this book who are not Matt or Philip. Mm-hmm. Like, Parker and, like, Stuart, mm-hmm. who have relationships with Meredith mm-hmm. and who want romantic relationships with Meredith. Mm-hmm. And we used to, like, cast a lot of derision on Parker, but Stuart really sort of, like, escaped our field of, like, kind of, like, fuck you vision when it's we read this the first time. He doesn't say anything about A, being friend-zoned. He yeah. immediately respects her autonomy and her choices and remains a loyal and good friend. Like, he doesn't let his feelings I don't her. remember thinking Stuart was, like, yeah, I don't remember thinking he was like a wet blanket or anything. No, yeah, I just sure, think it just great. wasn't in the cards for them. It yeah, didn't work out. yeah, yeah, yeah. So you like him, I guess. Uh, What's not not you, but like the reader likes. Yeah, Stuart. we should all like Stuart. Yeah, he's a good example yeah. of something. Yeah. yeah, I did like Stuart. Yeah. And then as like a, you know, consolation whole, prize, he may or may not end up with uh, Matt's how you, sister. How do you feel, though, about like him being like, I'll wait for you? Does he? Is he waiting like, don't actively you think or does he get over it? I, I feel like he we does get end up getting he gets over it. In the moment, though, I'm just like... Mm. It's not great when he says it, certainly. Then no, it doesn't right. feel great. Yeah. So he is what we would have thought of as like the the, the consummate quote-unquote friend zone position, mm-hmm. right? That's how he would have been understood. But you're saying that like Stuart's a really interesting character in this book because he like kind of confounds this role. Not immediately, but like as soon as she makes their friendship professional, I think like he just takes it on its face. Like A, he handles the joke really well about being pulled out of a meeting. And then B, he's like, well, if this is all you can offer, that is what I am willing to accept. And I'm like, cool. And he never, like, says anything about it again. And then he, like, represents her in this, like, fucked up deal that Matt pulls. And he goes, he goes, as they say, no, no pun intended, but in The Godfather, he goes to the mattresses with Matt, right? Yeah. He goes toe-to-toe with Matt. And that's and something Matt's I think And Matt's team that, of lawyers. Right. And so it's, like, Stuart versus, like, the team of corporate raiders. Yeah. And he, like... And he's, like, right there on Meredith's team and, like, looking out for her best interests. And he's, like, I can't tell you any more than my hunch about this, but, like, I don't think Matt is as serious about ruining your company and your father as you think he is because he loves you. And she's, like, I can't go on your hunch, Stuart. And he's, like, I wish you would because then you wouldn't have to deal with this weird blackmail. So this novel should be called Stuart's Game. <laughs> I think this book should be called What Emotional Abuse and Manipulation Look Like an Adult Woman. But... So, Paradise. Uh, wow, that's yeah, a great title. Yeah. Eee. Thrilling. I would definitely pick that up. But do you guys want to talk about Lisa and Parker? Okay, yeah. Yeah, they end up getting together. Yeah, they, they end yeah. up together. And Lisa is like clearly kind of wants to be with Parker the whole time. Yeah. And, and Meredith is really, the reader understands, like, Meredith, figure it out. Totally. Lisa really wants to be with Parker, but obviously is your best friend, so cannot bring herself to. But you were like stringing this guy along and stringing your best friend along. So the reader has this like incredible prescience about sort of like, oh, wow, Meredith is a total roadblock to multiple people's happiness here. Totally. See, now you have me arguing against Meredith, which is not something I want to be doing. Meredith isn't that great. I mean, she takes after PV, right? She does. Whoa. Yeah, she does, right? Yeah. yeah. All these people are like pawns in her game and like serve her purpose or whatever. And she rationalizes and rationalizes yeah. and yeah. rationalizes. Yeah, yeah, she's like constantly trapped in her own brain. So there's this amazing part. As Elisa wended Whoa. her way through the crowd, this is where we're about to meet Matt. And this is the meet cute part do. As Lisa wandered her way through the crowd, men turned to gaze appreciatively at the figure she presented. 
presented a willy redhead clad in billowing red satin lounge pants and a black velvet jacket with a beaded oh, black band tied around her band. forehead. Oh my God. You an look- utterly incongruous and inappropriate ensemble that somehow on Lisa looked exactly right. Other men thought that, but not Parker. Yeah. Hi, she said, coming up beside him and he filled his glass from the champagne fountains. He turned his gaze, narrowing with disapproval on her clothes and Lisa bridled at his unvoiced criticism. Oh no, she speculated dramatically. Has the prime rate gone up again? His irate gaze jerked from the cleavage exposed by her jacket to her taunting expression. Why don't you dress like other women? And I'm like, oh, they're gonna bang. See, Parker is Parker is a drip. <laughs> I'm really bummed that I'm the Parker of our relationship. Man. He gets better. No, he doesn't. Yeah, he does. He. I mean, what happens to him next? He's like, Meredith, are we getting married or aren't we? <laughs> and then he gets punched in the face, and then Lisa hits the guy who punched him, Matt. Amazing. And then you don't hear from Parker again. That's not true. We hear from Parker twice more after that. You can still fall in love with a drip, even if they're a drip. He becomes less drippy once he hangs out more with Lisa. Really? He like also, gets a gets Lisa a, like makes him cool. Gets an gets an earlobe stud. Yeah, like, maybe. Like George Michael style? Yeah. Or like Harrison Ford? Sure. Uh, like like uh, 1991 George Michael. Hey, Womance listeners, Isabeau here. And if you love Womance and you love what we do, would you do me a huge favor and click subscribe on your favorite podcasting app? And if you have just that extra second, would you go ahead and give us a rating as well? Ratings and subscriptions help keep this podcast going, lets other people know where we are, lets other people in on the delicious secret that is Womance and Romance in general. And more than that, don't keep us a secret. Tell your friends, tell your mom, tell her about the juicy bits, but, you know, let her discover the details. Because romance and womance is all about discovery. Thanks for listening. We look forward to seeing you. Matt's blood stirred hotly, and his hands itched to explore and caress those new curves she'd acquired. Oh. Mmm. In, like, what, adulthood? Yes, because she was 18 when they'd been fucking before. Suddenly, his treacherous mind presented him with a tantalizing solution. Perhaps, if he had her just one more time, he could quench this thirst for her and get her completely out of his system. Whoa. (laughs) That's a lot, right? The prose of this is a little overwrought. Swearing under his breath, Matt got out of bed and pulled on his robe. He was insane to even consider being intimate with her again. Again? He stopped cold. For the first time since she'd arrived, he was able to think without being weakened by the after effects of illness or those damned pills. Why in the hell had she come to the farm in the first place? She answered the question herself. I want a truce. Fine. He'd agreed. There's a lot of interiority for mm-hmm. Matt here. Yeah. Right? Mm-hmm. Judith loves interiority. We spend a That's lot of her, time I inside mean, of characters' minds. That is like her mode, it seems mm-hmm. like. Which, you know, I like that actually, I think. I'm into it. Yeah, I want to know what's going on in Matt's head. So he thinks all these mean things about her, and she's been super nice to him at the Indiana farm, where she's been nursing him back to health since the flu. And then he's thinking all these mean thoughts about her, and then if we skip ahead, he's, like, super mean. Where? Um, He buttons his shirt. And this is Meredith, on the same page? No, this is further, like, 338. Meredith tried to engage him in conversation, only to have him rebuff her attempts with curt brief replies. Like, he's trying to get her out of the Indiana house, and she's like, I thought we were having fun. What's going on? We're going to have this truce. 
And he's like, you're a terrible person. Oh, let's see. So, uh, like, 341. Yeah, here we go. Or 342, they're talking about abortion. Yep. Meredith lurched back, staring at him in stunned anger. Abortion, she choked. Didn't you hear what I just told you? I had a miscarriage. Damn you, don't lie to me! You have to listen. I don't want to talk anymore. He said roughly with his mouth. And his mouth captured hers in a bruising kiss? He has a really nasty kiss above. The kiss was intended to punish and degrade her, and Meredith knew it. But instead of fighting him as he obviously expected her to do, she wrapped her arms around his neck and pressed her body to his and kissed him back with the shattering tenderness and aching contrition of her heart. So this is the weirdest thing to me. So this is technically in the book, they're like third sex scene, right? But like the first one is when she loses her virginity. Then there's a there's a short one, right? And they, then, Yeah, they have sex for like a week after she loses her, well. Yeah, but they don't talk about it. Like, there are like two weird sex scenes in that where they okay. talk about it. And then in this one, mm-hmm. it's also like, they're always like on the verge of having sex with each other in these weird contradictory moments. Yeah, where he's like super mad at her, like he could kill her here. Yeah, but like it makes it hot because he can't resist. Hmm. Yeah, that's the thing. That's the thing. The thing is, is like, he shouldn't want to, but he just can't even help it. It's yep. like, yeah. So you feel like this is like it's programmed in him. He just has to. So this yep. says more about Matt than like Matt is always the one contradicting word in action. They both are. Yeah, it's exactly what. Yeah, it's exactly what Maruf is saying. Like they're both overcome by this like primal recognition of one another that even like their rational brains are overrode, and that's what's happening in this moment. He's like, "I'm gonna punish and degrade you with this kiss, you." And she's like, "I know what you're gonna do, but I'm not gonna let you because I'm gonna be like unresisting." And then he's like, "I'm being a bear and a monster. I'm not gonna kiss you like that anymore." She's like, "I tame you, bear monster." <laughs> yes. 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 yes exactly. That's exactly what that's it what is. That's what she's doing. Yeah. He's like, "My, your taming of me has just." <laughs> unleashed a different monster that is like tender yeah a, a like a tender triumph a tender yeah on mirror this part for a, sure a, a hybridic yeah. you me monster <laughs> the kiss deep and dramatically his mm. mouth moving urgently persuasively on hers and against her on hers and against her the dialectic <laughs> Meredith felt the rigid pressure of his aroused body. His dick is always his, his whole bo- freaking body. He is his dick. His dick is him. Whoa. <laughs> I don't know. That's some pretty good writing, Judy. <laughs> <laughs> like if, you, if that's what you were trying to weave into that passage, Judy, like mm. the, the phallus as person, mm. you nailed it. It's true. She really did. When he finally lifted his head, she was too dazed to immediately grasp the meaning. See, this is always what's happening. They're always like, Fugue state. Oh, our bodies are in a lust haze. Yeah. Your body is your dick and my body is, uh, you know, my labia and we are in a haze of labial body. It's a good place to be. It's a haze. Yeah. I guess that's what we're waiting for as readers. Yeah. It's the good stuff. I'm sad that you stopped. I feel like the stage has really been set for them to talk about abortions. Uh, are you using birth control? Before we get into bed, so you can show me how badly you really want that Houston property, he says, mid dot Like, listen, now that we're both so primed and kissing, I'd, re- and like, I'd that's really... Like, that's not going to work, guy. No. <laughs> <laughs> Let me accuse you of prostituting your body for this property. In Houston, no yeah. less. 
But he's also like dangling the carrot though. Totally. What's the he, carrot? Like, What's the, the carrot? Houston property? The carrot is the Houston property. He's kind of like, he might as well be like. So he's made it make transactional. It a rain. Yeah, yeah, exactly. He's, he's made it transactional. He's I mean, like, he's like, you're feeling really hot right now. And I know it's because you want this thing. I'm going to put this thing on the table. It's another Meredith trope. She's always like putting her head against his chest. He's got a big chest and she's like a short woman. Hmm. Yeah, what is that? Why, why that detail, though? Yeah, that detail is written why over and over and over again, right? It's so we know how strong his chest is, so he can bear all her problems, guys. Okay. Is that a normal, is that like a, a, a trope? Is that like... Chests are very fantastical in lady minds. Really? Why? Because they're broad. Yeah, mm-hmm. man. Carrie never puts her hand on your chest. <laughs> no, but I think that's like don't a feel, common descriptor. she puts her hand on your chest? There are like only so many man parts yeah. that like you can describe that are both figuratively excellent to talk about and also literally excellent to talk about. Like, so like chest has the meaning, like it has the fraught weight of the emotion, but also like it's physicality where it's like women are into pectorals. Mm-hmm. No, 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 I get that. I understand the, the eroticism of a mm-hmm. man's pectoral, but she's always resting her head against it mm-hmm. as if it's a pillowy place. Yeah, to lay I suppose her it is. down. Right, because it's, like it's a, so strong. It's like yeah. a safe, safe spot. Right. So it's also near his heart. Yeah, it can bear it. Mm. And it's where she gets in tune to what's going on inside of him Because in she way. can hear if his pulse is racing or if it's not. Aha. Mm. <laughs> his hand clamped against the back of her head as if he intended to force her head up again from his chest because like he wants to see into her eyes too close to the truth right here yeah but also he like the only way that he can read her is the truth in her eyes so like if she hides her face he can't read her reaction to know whether or not she's lying Mm. because they don't trust each other right i don't feel like they seem silly in this scene per se the the chest thing seems silly yeah i don't feel like it seems silly at all no i don't i don't think anybody made that suggestion <laughs> you were thinking it though. No, I guess I made that suggestion. Yeah. I was like, they're always right. doing this stupid chest thing. And now that we've talked about it, I'm like, oh, okay. Yeah. Let's see what that means. Anyway, do you want me to keep reading? You can skip ahead to if you would start on page 343 where she bent her head. Let's do her crying, if you would. Sure. Thanks. Yeah. <laughs> her crying, just like sobbing, really. Yeah. She bent her head, her shoulders jerking with sobs. She couldn't suppress any longer. Matt knew she was crying. Well, how could he not? (laughs) (laughs) He's real good at that. But he was rendered incapable of reaction by a memory that had started screaming through his brain when she mentioned her father, a vision of Philip Bancroft standing in the study, white-faced with rage. You think you're tough, Farrell, but you don't even know what tough is yet. I'll stop at nothing to get Meredith free of you. After that tirade, after Bancroft's rage was spent, He'd asked Matt if they could try to get along for Meredith's sake. Bancroft had seemed sincere. He seemed to accept the marriage, albeit reluctantly. But had he really? Matt wondered now. I'll stop at nothing to get Meredith free of you. Meredith raised her eyes to his then, wounded blue-green eyes. In a state of paralyzed uncertainty, Matt looked into those eyes. And what he saw nearly sent him to his knees. They were filled with tears and pleading. Yeah, dude, come on, she's been crying for a bit. (laughs) He's like waking up from his fugue state. From his fugue. Yeah, Yeah, she was like, oh, she's trying to prove something to me. I better go into a sexual fugue state so I can reject this truth. (laughs) That's weird. So anyway, she's crying, he sees now, after, you know, literally three pages. And they were filled with tears and pleading. And truth. Naked, soul-destroying, unbearable truth. Matt, she whispered achingly, we had a baby girl. 
Oh my god. <laughs> he groaned and yanked her into his arms. Oh god. <laughs> that's plenty, thank you. <laughs> but like, I mean, that's an appropriate reaction because literally three paragraphs above that, he's saying that she's a liar and a terrible person and he's dangling Houston the property in front of her. Like, let's talk about how the emotions are really um roller coastery okay. in this book, but also like, how did you take that? The fact that like we're rolling from I hate you, I'm gonna have sex with you, and this hate sex is gonna be awesome and like get you out of my system mm-hmm. to oh my god, I read the truth in your naked soul destroying eyes. Right. Now I believe you. Now let's have tender sex where I'm gonna put you so far into my system that we're gonna get married again. Um, it's kind of nice because you get the, like, satisfaction of the thought of the hate sex, but it doesn't actually happen, which is good. So it, like, you get aroused. Yeah, you get aroused from the idea of the hate sex. Okay. And then... You know, it's it's interesting because I think the very... actually happen. Well, the very thing you described, like, this, the, the, the contradictory nature of, like, the setup for the sexuality versus the payoff of the sexuality is something that I think, like, as we just did, it was kind of, like, confounding to us, or at least we were sort of checking in with each other as we read that, like, what's gonna happen here? Are they gonna have hate sex? Like, are we gonna get this scene that's, like, full of hate sex? But after they have this hate sex, is there gonna be this, like, this impossible rift that they can't repair? Like, that's what they're trying to do, right? They're trying to, like, hate fuck each other so that they can't come back from it, right? That's what he's trying to do. Yeah, she's, she's trying to do it. something else. But, it's, yeah. but she tried to do that. She's tried to do that at other times too, no? She's never tried to hate fuck him. Okay. But she tried to hate fuck her father using his, his aroused body, no? Originally, yes. Yeah, so... In her father's office. You're right. That's, it's good that you're bringing that back, but like that is like literally the one and only time, and then he stops her and she feels humiliated. Right, and, and then they forward. have that turn, but, yeah. but they end up having sex. You're right. The sex is very confounding in this. And Why? I, Why is it confounding? I mean, for all of those moves, because it's like, you know, suddenly it's like, it's hateful, it's angry, it's possessive, and then like, mm-hmm. then they're crying and holding each other, right. and then like they tumble into his childhood bedroom, which is like a weird thing, and then he wakes up alone. That's the next scene. Right. Because she's like so overwrought about this. She's also engaged to Parker Reynolds right, and like right. leaves immediately for Chicago. And rather than being hurt that she's deserted him, he's like, oh, I see what she's done. She got scared. She can't take a risk. She's like the old department store that she loves so much. She'll only do things if she knows the risk of failure is so low. And I am like, the highest payoff, highest risk. I am like, you know, whatever that is. He's the corporate writer. Yeah, and she's not. <laughs> and she's so like, so he understands why she left. Yeah, and he's not mad about he's it. Not so, mad about it. Yeah, yeah, he calls his driver slash bodyguard, Joe O'Hara. Joe O'Hara. And he's like, get here in two hours. And he's like, it's four hours away. And he's like, get here. And Joe's like, okay. And then he like draws up this elaborate plan to blackmail and manipulate her into spending time After with him. After this, he does this. Yeah. After this. So, you know, I know that you guys have feelings about Parker, or you had when you were 21. Yeah, he just seemed like a real freaking loser. So, Parker is away. In comparison, for sure. In comparison. Comparatively, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. He is described as a Robert Redford, y'all. I mean, did you want to be with Paul Newman or Robert Redford? <laughs> I don't think we're dealing with Paul Newman. Uh, I think we're dealing with I something. mean, who's going to get picked ass is Matt Farrell. Yeah, who's... Jason Moma. Cal Drago? Yeah. I don't think oh, that guy can carry a scene okay. I was long looking enough. for something from the same era, but okay, yeah. Yeah, I would have yeah. said I would have said really unfortunately, and I, and I hate this, but like a lesser Baldwin, you know, sure, like not he's, even Alec. Well, yeah, like, maybe Alec because like, he's like, dark and hairy. Like Billy Baldwin. Backdraft. No, he's, no, yeah. no. Yeah. 
What? Yeah. No. Right? Uh, right? Slick back hair? No. Yeah. No. Maybe like Charlie Sheen beefier from like that Gordon Greco movie. Uh, but he, I don't think, I don't think Charlie Sheen has the panache. Mm. I certainly don't think this Jason fellow has the panache. Jason Moba, you take that back. I, I shan't. Oh God. Clearly you yeah, haven't man. seen. They go, they go nuts. Who? People, He's Aquaman. People go nuts. Anyway. All right. Uh, <laughs> ill-considered sex, um, denouement, and then she drives back to Chicago all sad, whatever, because she's scared. And all this time, her fiancé, Parker, has been in Switzerland giving a speech about bank deregulation. Oh, God. <laughs> See, I mean, how are we supposed to like Parker? <laughs> this is why you're supposed to like Parker. Here it is. Yeah, uh, he called Friday night to say that he had missed her and needed to hear the sound of her voice. This is Parker. But that's a messages. play. But that's a play, though. It's not a play. He doesn't know what she's done. And then his... Oh, he Knows. He doesn't know yet. His Saturday morning message had been mildly confused at her lack of reply. Saturday night, he'd been worried by her silence, and he'd asked if her father had gotten ill on his cruise. Sunday morning, he said he was alarmed that he and he was going to call Lisa. Unfortunately, Lisa had evidently explained that Meredith had gone to see Matt on Friday to tell him the truth and get things straightened out. Parker's Sunday night message was furious and hurt. Call me, damn it, he said. I want to believe you have a legitimate reason for spending the weekend with Farrell, if that's what you've done but i'm running out of excuses meredith sustained that part better than the next words which were filled with confusion and tenderness darling where are you really i know you weren't with Farrell. i'm sorry i said that my imagination is running wild did he agree to the voice nicely has he murdered you i'm terribly worried i'm buying a plane ticket come on parker man (laughs) i think i think that's nice you could say yeah i don't know like all those like stages and then like out of the Three Piggies houses, he's like the house of straw. <laughs> I mean, I, I, I agree with this in the terms of like, to, to us, we, I feel like, and I'm, now I'm speaking for both of us, tell me if you agree here, because I feel like we read that and we're like, that is so transparently what he's doing. His thing is like, I'm calling you this many times, not because I'm working through this whole process. He was at number one. He was like, first call, he was there. He was already there. But he didn't know. Yeah, but he knew. He thinks. <laughs> he freaking thinks. And you don't think it's normal to call your fiance like every day that you're gone? Yeah, I, I mean, I mean, I do, but it's also like I have to leave a message. I'd be pissed, and then like, and then he gets mad, and then like takes it back because he's he scared. Takes it back. Yeah. Do you know what I do? I mean, I, I think. I mean, but you would just been like, listen, you're not calling me. Maybe you need some space. Maybe this has been weird for you. Obviously, I'm upset, so I'm just going to deal with this when I get back to Chicago. That's more adult. This motherfucker's meant to be an adult, no? He's trying, he, to, be, he's trying to be compassionate. Yeah. So then... for playing an angle. Six pages later, he's arrived mm-hmm. truncatedly from Switzerland. And what are the first words he says? The first words that he says? Yeah, what's his, what's his like... Oh, I don't even think that's the most important thing that he says, but let me find it. Um, well, I think they're like... He would, he would tiptoe around it before he got to it. Oh, he says this thing about like my deal went south and clearly my engagement is on the rocks. So I thought I would come back to see if I could salvage one or both, I think is what he says. Uh, no, uh, that's that sounds correct. He you? says, did you forget something? And then he says, I wonder if you forgot like the fact that you have a fiance. And then she's overwhelmed with remorse that he'd actually flown home. I didn't forget. She said, I'm so sorry. Oh, and then they have this whole weird thing. And he mentions the, the deal that's gone south and he flies back. Since I also seemed on the verge of losing my fiance, I decided to fly home and see if I could do to salvage one or both. Yeah, it's, I think it's, that's pretty bad. And then she says, you were never on the verge of losing me. And it's then, like clearly, and it's like the 
audience, we know like, oh, you're yeah, yeah. done. You're yeah. fucking Your done, goose son. is cooked, yeah. Parker. And you're going to go, what, 300 more pages? And this is the real problem. So this is the turn for Parker for me, where she says she explains the lie that her father told. I started to cry when I told him about Elizabeth's funeral. I think Matt was trying very hard not to cry. It wasn't time for anger somehow. The guilt she felt for what happened after that was in her eyes and Parker saw it. No, I suppose it wasn't. He'd been sitting hunched slightly forward, his forearms on his legs, and he's like, blah, 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 thinking, thinking, thinking. And then she's about to tell him that she had sex with Matt. Mm -hmm. If you're wondering whether Matt and I, don't tell me if you went to bed with him, Meredith. He bit out. Lie to me if you have to, and then make me believe it. But don't tell me you slept with him. And I'm like, ooh, Parker, what are you trying to save? And then she does His own dignity, probably. I mean, like, and then they go through this entire charade for another, like, 250 pages. Yeah. So I guess that's why I feel like Parker's a freaking, like, he's a self-lie. Yeah, he is. Yeah. He just respects her bodily autonomy more and, like, doesn't emotionally manipulate her except in that point. Where I feel like he's more manipulating himself than her. Hmm. I don't know. I guess I, I don't know. We didn't like him. No. Didn't like him, but she has a point. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, I don't think we would have thought about that. I think we would have been like, oh, man, Parker, you suck. I'm glad that Parker ends up with Lisa, though. Yeah. So we've talked a lot about all of the autonomy, kind of the gross runaway capital in this book. Everybody's stupid wealthy. Um, Right. What's your weirdest part? Weirdest part? Weirdest part of the whole book for you, Merv. Um... I guess how neatly everything's tied up at the end. Yeah. Isn't it? Like, like, with like a, yeah, that's a really like good a way. <laughs> yeah, totally. Like with like a, be- like, like a yeah. brand new Lamborghini with a bow on it. Right. Yeah. It's just... Befitting these people. Yeah. Everything yeah, just like... Definitely. Everything just works out. I mean, it was super like turbulent the whole way through, but then it just all works out for the best. It does. Well, and it's kind of one yeah. of these things where it's like the thing with Meredith is, is she thinks that she can't have children. Mm-hmm. Right. And it's, like, a major complex for her. So part of, like, the wrap-up is, like, spoiler alert, they have a fucking kid. You know what they name her? Paradise or something? Marissa. Oh, yeah, that's pretty bad. It's so bad. They name a new floor in the store after, yeah, she's ousted her father, the shit heel. Why do they do that again? Uh, It's because it's all of these, like, foreign items, and all of their price tags are over, like, $1,200. So it's, like, the paradise floor of the Bancroft department store. Wait, all the items are foreign? Yeah, they're, like, an oriental carpet and, like, a peacock lampshade from, like, Delhi. Rough. Yeah, it's super (laughs) colonial. Like, they're not good people. Uh. (laughs) Come on, please. Go go to bat for the Bancrofts. They're not using their money, like, I mean, I can't can't go to the bat for the fucking Bancrofts. I think think the weirdest part for me of this book is, um, I think it's... How long it is in a lot of ways. Like, it's an incredibly fraught book. Mm-hmm. And I don't know, I like this book actually a lot. But yeah. I was really surprised when we were recapping it, for instance. And it's like, she goes all the way to Indiana and they have the reveal. And it's in that moment that Matt is like, cool, I got another novel's worth of a scheme to hatch. <laughs> right? That's weird. And then there's the, a bunch of weird side stories, like one about the lawyer who mm-hmm. tried to perform their divorce and mm-hmm. then isn't able to do it. Like, it's, it's just And then like, he's murdered. Right! Like, it's like, that's that's weird to me. Like, there were a lot of times we'd be reading this and we would stop and we'd be like, what are we doing? <laughs> like, Matt and Meredith aren't even in this scene. What yeah. are we doing here? Right? And, I, and I've forgotten a lot of that stuff, so I felt like it wasn't central to the book 
in a lot of ways. We, we remember mostly the good parts. There were lots of moments where we were just like... A lot of boardroom. Yeah, there was, there was, yeah, for sure. We were like just waiting to see when they would meet again. Like you learn about yeah. all of Matt's assistance. And you, you sure learn, do. And you learn about there's a whole embezzlement subplot. Which doesn't really end up going very far. Right. And and they kind of like Matt and Meredith foil it together in some no, way. No, she does it all by herself. All by her herself and Matt's, Matt's not involved in that at well, all? Well, he discovers that somebody is... So there, like, there are two things that are happening at Bancroft department yeah. stores. Somebody is buying up stock and then right. bomb threading her expansion stores in New Orleans and right. Arizona. So the price of the stock goes back down. So like they're facing a potential hostile takeover. But as that's happening, Matt is also buying stocks to also potentially have a hostile takeover because they both want controlling shares. So all that's happening. And then there's this guy who's having an affair with his secretary who's getting kickbacks to a merchandiser. Yeah, so all He's right. like selling buttons. So it's uh, like, I remember that. Yeah, yeah it's just like... It's kind of like, Judith, what are you, what's why going do we on need here? This? How many threads you need here? So like, many. Okay, like, let me make this really simple for you. They go to Indiana, they come back to Chicago, they go to dinner, they figure out they want to be together. Like That's not what happened. No, that's not what happened. He sets up a massive, amazing blackmail of her where she has to contractually spend for every year of their marriage that he's missed. She has to spend a week with him, four days a week, where they go to dinner and go to public stuff and like plays. And he wines and dines her and like wears her down. And the corporate scene of them <laughs> fighting over this contract is so rough because he has these like two lawyers himself, three piece suits, the works, and she has her lawyer. And she's like, wait, you want four days a week for 11 weeks where you just, you have me on command I'm not your slave and she has this amazing moment where she's like I can't believe that you do this to me and like threaten my father and my bank and everything else and he's like I wasn't doing it for sex how could you think that that wasn't the conclusion that she would come to Matt that's obviously what she's gonna think you stupid fuck I mean, yeah, because in his mind, he's, like, really so noble. You, so the weirdest thing for you is the blackmail. Yeah, and that yeah. he doesn't see it as blackmail, and that he isn't putting himself on the same level as her dad. Where I'm like, these are two sides of the same coin here, and you're both maneuvering this very powerful, very competent woman in ways that yeah. are really unfair. So you felt like we didn't even really need the blackmail no. storyline in order to have what they have. Totally. He could have just kept showing up in her sphere without a contractual obligation to right. see her. Like, she's already contractually obligated to see him. He's trying to take over her company. Right. So, like, they have a business relationship. Also, he's very high-handed with her. Like, for her 30th birthday, he buys her a Jaguar, but he doesn't tell her that. He just puts it in her parking spot in her apartment building. And then she sees it, and she thinks her car has been stolen. And so then she calls the cops, and she's like, there's a Jaguar in my spot where my 1984 BMW that I bought for reliability should be. And they're like, we'll get the cops here immediately. We'll get it towed immediately. And then he shows up to be like, I don't know, stalk her. And she's like, I have to call the cops. I can't deal with you right now. There's this car in my parking spot. And he's like, yeah, it's your birthday present. So what's this like dom trope that's going on? You know, like, why is this dominant display? Because he loves her so much. All right. As you do. I guess love is possession. Okay. But yeah, that's the weirdest part for me. His behavior and that he doesn't see it as manipulative when he's constantly throwing her father's atrocious villain behavior in her face okay because her father is terrible and no one likes pb yeah he's awful he's so good as a villain though he's just like maleficent like ideal bad guy i mean sure i, I don't like him so that's yeah the but idea. like is it enjoyable <laughs> to dislike him uh i don't know um yeah yeah it feels like i think Jude mcnaught actually does a good job like meredith loves him and you understand why like he's a pitiful character mm -hmm. he's not pure evil he's clearly like 
wrong and bad, but he's like he's not complex, I guess, but he's he's pitiful. Like he, you feel sorry for Philip Bancroft in a lot of ways. I don't know. No. I don't. I don't like him. I never felt sorry for him either. I was like, I never made that turn. And that was like one of the obstacles to me liking Meredith was the way that she would rationalize his terrible behavior. Yeah, she and she... Always. Yeah, she does, yeah. Just like the way that he would control her, I'd be like, man, I would just straight up just leave my entire fortune and say, fuck it, I don't want to do this. I I don't want to be, I don't want to be misconstrued here saying like, oh, just controlling her a little. That's not what I mean, you know, like, I'm just (laughs) saying, it's just like, he's in so much of the novel. Oh, yeah. Right? So there's, and he's, and his, his motivations are singular in a lot of ways you know what i mean but but yeah, i don't know it's like who he is as a person is his empire mm-hmm. and nothing else matters mm-hmm. right and i'm gonna yeah he's look, pathetic like nothing is real you might see my my actions as having consequences on you but he doesn't even take them into account he's like he's like a fucking kanye or something he just like yeah he does whatever the fuck he wants you know what i mean he's mm-hmm. just like and he doesn't care yeah whatever he wants whatever he feels yeah, yeah. feels is right yeah he's like this he is feel- the way yeah. the world works yeah 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 women shouldn't wear pantsuits yeah. yeah and he's awful yeah he's awful he is truly he's a great villain one of the things I didn't like was the reclamation of Philip at the end when he goes to see his ex-wife in Italy. Mm-hmm. And he's like, I thought you'd live in a better house than this. And she's like, same old, same old. Let me lay some truth on you so you become a better person. Uh, and then her truth like slowly sinks in and like they visit him in the epilogue. And I'm like, mm, he doesn't deserve that. So maybe I felt the way I did about Philip because of how the novel made me feel about Philip. Oh yeah, Judith McNaught is like pulling that hard. And it's like, it's a hard turn. To take. I mean, she writes it beautifully. She's an incredible craftician of what she's doing, but like, I just, I wasn't there for it. Philip was too bad for too long for me to want him to be redeemed. I don't like all my villains to be redeemed. Sometimes I just want them to die. Yeah, it's like, Philip could have just had a heart attack. Yeah, it would have been great. They just could have like watched it. And buried him. And then she would have been president. No headstone. Just like... (laughs) (laughs) Here lies the venture capitalist. Yeah, it was like Bancroft. That would be like great. That. What was your favorite sex scene? Well, uh, we, uh, we recently reread their first one, and it is kind of like a, a weird tour de force of uh, phenomenological sensation. <laughs> it's like. Not that it didn't arouse us. Yeah. Yeah. But favorite because of how complicated the moment was. And mm. like, yeah. Yeah. And like, it set in motion like so much to build off of. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. It was really the turning point of this young relationship is that she gets pregnant and it's sort of like that's very clearly within the first sex scene, but it's elided in a way that is that is sort of like you can skip right over it. Meredith acknowledges this, but then chooses to skip right over it in a lot of ways. It's And their first night together, uh, though it ends in this weird sex scene, is also like it's kind of nice mm-hmm. like when they meet each other. So like they don't have an unweird sex scene and that's already a weird. All the sex in this book seems really weird. Yeah, like what in what way? All of the sex scenes have a catch to them, right? Even in this first one, it's sort of like... Like they accomplish she's, something? Well, she's like losing her virginity. Or like in the one where Matt, we first meet Matt and he's having sex with this rich girl, like she doesn't want to be seen with him. Or like in the one where they're in Indiana, like he's like, I'm going to fuck you because I think you aborted our child. You know what I mean? Like, I'm going to, like, hate fuck you, right? Like, I'm going to, like, trick you in with this Houston property. You know what I mean? Like, all the sex scenes seemingly have some kind of, like strange complication to them. The characters seemingly feel torn about them. And I found that actually very pleasurable as a reader. 
Yeah, because sex isn't just about sex. Right. And Judith McNaught understands this. Yeah. It's like a very complicated, <laughs> nonverbal language where people use it to work out all sorts of things. Which is my favorite sex scene comes very late. There's been this epic fight at her birthday between Lisa, Parker, and Matt. Lisa and Parker go home together because she has to take care of him because he's drunk. Oh, they have sex together. Yeah. Yeah. Her confession of love is really sweet. Um, yeah, read that. <laughs> Lisa's confession of love? Yeah. 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 Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. let me see if I can find it. Do you remember this? This passage? This, like, like we were reading, like, when, when Lisa and Parker get together and she's like, the thing is, like, I feel this way about you. And he's, like, lolling. I can't remember. Did it come, like, very unexpectedly? It, it was. It was, it was, right? Yeah. 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 Okay, so Parker is at Lisa's house and he's like, I should really go home. He's rubbing his sore jaw because he was totally laid out. Your place is going to be crawling, so you might as well stay here. And then he's like, what about Meredith? She felt the funny ache in her heart at his frustrating concentration on a woman who is not in love with him and who was, moreover, the last woman in the world that he should be in love with. Parker, she said softly, it's over. He lifted his head and looked at her in the muted light of the lamp, realizing she was referring to his future with Meredith. I know. And then she says, it's not the end of the world sitting beside him. The relationship was comfortable for you and for Meredith. But do you know what happens to comfortable after a few years? No, what? It degenerates a doll. And then she goes into the kitchen and he's like looking around her apartment and she's like putting the dishes away. He says, what made you take that swing at Farrell? And she goes, I don't know. And he's like, you can't stand me. Yet you went leaping to my defense like an avenging angel. Why? (laughs) And then instead of answering that question, she says, what makes you think I can't stand you? And he's like, you're joking. You've never failed to make an eloquently clear how you feel about me and my profession. And she says, that's just teasing. He's like, why? Why have I teased you? No, but you could start with that. Lisa shrugged, making an adventure in fastidiousness out of putting away the tea things and wiping the sink, but her mind was working frantically. Parker was a banker. Everything had to add up for him, and her actions and explanations weren't doing that. Can you remember when you were a kid, say nine or ten? She began, I'm capable of that, yes. (laughs) Did you ever like a girl back then and try to get her attention? Yes. Swallowing audibly, she plunged ahead because it was too late to turn back. I don't know how preppy boys did it, but in my neighborhood, a boy usually threw a stick at you or teased you terribly because they didn't know any other way to make you notice them. Gripping the countertop with both hands, Lisa waited for him to speak. Do you have any idea how I feel about Meredith? Everything I am, everything I have, all the good things are because of her. She's the kindest, finest person I've ever known. I love her more than my own sisters. Weird. Parker, (laughs) she finished brokenly. Can you imagine how horrible it feels to be in love with a man and have him propose to the friend you also love? And then Parker says, I'm obviously passed out, drunk somewhere, and hallucinating. In the morning, when they bring me round, some psychoanalyst is going to want to know about this dream, just so I can be completely accurate when I describe it. Are you trying to tell me that you've been in love with me all this time? And then Lisa says, it was very stupid of you not to notice. I'm what a fucking <laughs> rude, right? Like, yeah. are we justified in this? I feel like, yeah. Come on. And then he says, Lisa, for God's sake, I don't know what to say. I'm sorry. Don't say anything she said, and especially not that you're sorry. Then what am I supposed to do? And then she says, how could I possibly fall in love with such an unimaginative man? Parker, on a night like this, when two people are badly in need of comfort and they happen to be a man and a woman, doesn't that answer seem obvious to you? And then he says, the odds are very bad. And then she goes, life is a big gamble. And then they fall into bed and it's great. Talk about overriding. I mean, <laughs> I love Lisa. <laughs> Lisa's the best. Parker? Parker is one lucky dude. Yeah. 
Right? It's fucking Gollum. Yeah, I, I maybe we hate him so much because like he blunders, doesn't deserve Lisa. He blunders everything so much and yeah. still ends up with an awesome girl. You know, he's yeah. he's he's the fucking mold of like waspy North Shore white man. Right? Yes. It's sort of like yeah. endless opportunities totally. blundered. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Everything just kind of falls into his lap. Yeah. Or whatever. yeah. He's got this exciting, vibrant, super awesome. Mm-hmm. You know, person interested. In him, yeah, and, and but like, these aren't and these aren't he's talking himself out of it. Yeah, yeah, these aren't reasons why a person like doesn't deserve love or anything, though. This is just <laughs> this is this is just how this is just how we feel. Like it's like not necessarily fair. I think it's so fair we're just to talk- be mad at yes, his chance choices and chances. Yeah, okay. He gets so many of you them. You bring me round on that one. You, okay. you really felt like we were putting it to him a little hard. Yeah, 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 yeah. We need to. Well, I'm sorry. Okay. I think it's fine. <laughs> Parker can handle it, you guys. Parker can handle it. Parker's All not right. real. So what's so amazing about this is Parker and Lisa fall into bed. They have this like amazing night together. It's all fade to black and whatever. And Meredith is like, all of my friends got into a fight last night and I can't get a hold of any of them. And I don't want to call Max. I'm mad at him. So then she tries Parker's apartment and he's not there. And she tries calling Lisa like five times and Lisa won't answer. And when she finally gets a hold of Lisa at Lisa's house, Parker answers. You. And <laughs> don't answer another person's phone. <laughs> you fucking rube. But instead of being mad, she's like let off the hook. And then right. lo and behold, right. knock, knock, knock at her door. It's Matt. And so follows my favorite sex scene. Because there's so much giggling in it. They're like so happy. Like, you know, everything's coming up roses. And she's oh, like. Oh, so that's like an unmitigated sex scene. Yeah. Where okay. she's like, can you imagine this incestuous thing happened where two people that I love are now like fucking in their apartment? And he's like, yeah, that's weird. Also awesome. Yeah. We can fuck N- yeah. 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 So let's. Get to it. Hop on the good foot. Yeah, and then he he does this whole thing where he's like sort of chasing her around the apartment and she's like giving him reasons why they shouldn't have sex or be together. And she's like, I can't have kids. And he's like, we'll adopt. It's just very nice. It's very fun. Yeah. Yeah, they're nice together. Yeah. He says we'll adopt. That's yeah. yeah. And he's then, very he's very he can comfort her so easily. Yeah, he really can. He just like comes through. He just comes through. Other than the blackmail, he's great. <laughs> blackmail at the core of the novel. He is. He's great. Really solid. He is. He is actually. So is this a romance or a no man's gentleman? Definitely, it is a romance. It's a romance, big time. We set out to read what was billed as like a piece de resistance romance novel. When we were young men trying to figure out what a romance novel even was. Slash women. Yeah. (laughs) And then, you know, just the the whole thing. We were just like fucking lost. And I don't know. Some self-reflection. Yeah, I don't know if like Judith McNaught's Paradise unlost us. (laughs) But you know, it's like that. it was along the way in the journey of somewhat self-discovery. For sure. Daddy Discovery. I would definitely Daddy Discovery. Yeah. We call each other Daddy. Yes. Why do you guys what, call each other Daddy? It's like a it's like a nickname term of endearment. Like. Yeah. It's just yeah. I don't know. I don't remember why we started calling each other Daddy, but we call each other Daddy. We like it. <laughs> Continue. Good. Yeah. So anyway, you know, I think like we set out to read a romance novel, thinking it would be silly, and then sort of like lo and behold, years ago, we're talking about. You know, we're talking about all these years later. It's clearly like a major length in the tapestry of our friendship. Yeah, this is a romance. Definitely a romance. Excellent. So as, <laughs> is this advice that you would give to other young men on the make to read a romance novel? Do you think you learned some I'd valuable lessons? I'd say something shorter, but yeah. <laughs> 
would say, you know, I, I mean, yeah, <laughs> it's better than, yeah, I like, yeah, I like to watch, I like reading it. I think especially as a, a young person, reading something that you would like never read that is quote unquote not for you, I would recommend that. Whether or not, you know, like reading it from the point of view of like, oh, how to get women read a romance novel. I was, I was seeking, I mean, like I was seeking to broaden my perspective. Right. Right. Like, like why, why is it not yeah, written for me? Yeah, fuck yeah, it's written yeah, for you. exactly. It's also like, it has these problems and you shouldn't like build quote unquote masculinity around like Matt Farrell. That's a nightmare. Nope. But also his masculinity <laughs> is really taken down and we have Stuart as a foil. We have Parker as a foil. Yeah. We have other men and other ways of yeah. being men in the this book that I think is really nice. And we talked about our forming masculinity mm -hmm. and how to like unform elements of our masculinity around this book. It was a formative novel in that way. I think for me, at least. For me too. So. Yeah, just a lot of feelings. Yeah, people felt a lot in this sorting, book. So. And sorting them out. Yeah. 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 I think here's the thing. Reading something like this in isolation, if like you've never read something like that, I think is maybe not as formative as reading it with someone else that you might otherwise, quote unquote, be embarrassed to have read it. Mm -hmm. Finding someone immediately, let's read this book in a way that we're like discussing this book. I feel like I would have been embarrassed at the time if someone caught me reading it alone. Right, yeah. But I don't know. Like People made, made fun it, of us a lot, yeah. actually. But like, we didn't care because... Yeah, because it was something we did together yeah. and it was important to us and we enjoyed it. And so like people would come into our house and they'd be like, what is this romance novel? And we would very seriously be like, this is what we read. This is what we're reading right they, now. Most people didn't believe us. Yeah, and they were like, yeah. you're, you're fucking around. So you, we're like, okay, you can not believe us. <laughs> yeah, and, and yeah. it was kind of a... So it was like... I sort of like am loath to say empowering, <laughs> but it was <laughs> like, uh, that feels like <laughs> like co-optive. Uh, I will not say that, but I will say that like it was it was nice to enjoy it genuinely, which I think is what we did. I think you guys would find yourselves really at home in Romancelandia. Many of us feel like we can't read the books that we love in the open and talk about them on their own merits. And so I want to thank both of you for sharing this decade-long bromance, romance, womance Daddy with mans. me. Daddy mans. Of course. Um, Daddy mans. And for being our inaugural uh, male voices on our podcast. This has been a real delight oh, for me. That's an incredible pleasure. And so thank bad. You. Yeah, yeah, too. yeah. very nice. Thank this is, I mean, we really appreciate you just sort of like giving us a chance to excavate our <laughs> deep and abiding love affair. That is what we aim to do on Romance. <laughs> excavate love affairs. Hey folks, it's Morgan. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode of Womance. Our logo is by Mary Reichman and our original music and editing is by Nick Gravelin. They're the best. Feeling woeful about waiting a whole week for more Womance? Well, chin up, buttercup. You can creep or connect with us anytime on Twitter. We're at woe underscore mance or Instagram, womance, all one word. You can also find us on Tumblr at womance.tumblr.com. If you prefer to be more direct... Why not send us an email? We're womancemail at gmail.com. Can't wait to hear from you. And don't forget to tune in next week.